You're bold, you're arrogant, you're blasphemous, and you haven't got a clue what you're talking about. You're as good as a brute beast. You're an expert in greed, and you're filled with lust and adultery. You deserve to be cursed by God. You're wicked and you're stupid. You promise much, but you deliver nothing. You speak of being free, but you only ever plunge further and further into the swamp of sin. By your evil lies, you entice and you seduce others into your cesspool of depravity. When God deals with you, he'll rain down on you in judgment so dark, so black, so severe. Your punishment will be so awful. You'll wish you were never born. And your torment, your agony and your despair will be precisely what you deserve. Now, how could anyone say such things? Is there ever a time for such intolerant words such as those? It is so offensive to talk to someone like that. The problem is those words are lifted pretty much straight out of 2 Peter chapter 2. They're God's words. Something was happening back in 2 Peter that had Peter seriously ticked. The issue at stake was so severe, he was slicing up his opponents and he was rightfully angry. And if the same sort of thing were to happen amongst us, we should react the same way. Because there's some things that just can't be done, can't be said, can't be tolerated. There's too much at stake. So what was happening? What could possibly cause us to be so righteously angry like Peter was? Well, when people are among God's church and deliberately tell lies about Jesus. Look, I know that doesn't sound that dramatic, but can you remember last week? True knowledge of Jesus, that gives us life and godliness and a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Christ. But to have false knowledge of Christ would be to miss out. Instead of heaven, hell. So if someone's among God's people, deliberately telling lies about Jesus. We can't just sit back and let them seduce people into the full fury of God, which means it's important for our sake and for the sake of those around us here this morning, it's important that we make sure that we do have the true knowledge of Christ. And this is why before opening up on the false teachers, Peter first wants to assure his readers that they do have the true knowledge of Jesus. When Peter told them about Christ, he didn't uh, make up stories, he didn't deliberately tell lies, he didn't invent the truth, he saw the truth, he heard the truth, he was an eyewitness. Chapter 1, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now please notice here Peter's stress on his first-hand experience of Christ's majesty. He was among eyewitnesses. Twice he tells us that he himself heard God's voice that declared Christ's majesty. Uh, Peter's referring to the time that Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. You can read about it in uh, Matthew 17. Peter was there that day. He was one of the three people that Jesus took with him up the mountain. Peter saw Jesus transfigured. Peter heard uh, God's voice from heaven. 
And here in verse 17, he says that that voice gave Jesus glory and honor because God said to Jesus, this is my son, which is another way of saying that Jesus is the ruler of the world. Uh, When God said, this is my son, he was quoting Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is all about God's king ruling the world, crushing his enemies. The Psalms and the prophets, they all look forward to this coming majestic, world-beating king. And Peter was there the day that God himself said that Jesus is the one, the majestic, world-beating king that the Psalms and the prophets all look forward to. God said, it's Jesus, which means we have the word of the prophets made more certain because what the prophets look forward to, Peter saw firsthand. Have a look, verse 19. Verse 19, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets only spoke God's word. They, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But Peter says that the prophets' divinely inspired words have been made more certain. I would have thought that's pretty tricky. If they're the divinely inspired words of God, how can you make them more certain? Well, it's when what they spoke about comes to fulfillment. It's a little bit like, and I do mean a little, uh, when the weatherman, uh, when he says that tomorrow's weather will be fine and sunny, We work on the assumption that that's what it'll be uh, because the word of the weatherman for tomorrow's weather is pretty certain, but it's made more certain when tomorrow actually is fine and sunny. Now, the word of the prophets said that God's king was coming, and that word is certain because it's come from God, but it's made more certain when the king actually comes. Peter was there when the Lord Jesus Christ came. He was an eyewitness. And so with our Old Testaments, And the words of the prophets speaking of the Christ and with our New Testaments, with the words of the apostles and the eyewitnesses, we have the true knowledge of Christ. Not cleverly invented stories, not hocus pocus, true knowledge of the Lord Jesus because it's come from God himself. And so as we thought a little bit last week, uh, reading our Bibles, it's just what's so important to us. Because in our Bibles, we have the very words of God giving us the true knowledge of Christ knowledge that saves us, knowledge that enables us to live a godly life, knowledge that leads us into the rich welcome of Christ's eternal kingdom. And so, as Peter says, we should pay very careful attention to God's word, not just uh, reading it, but working hard at understanding it and then living by it because true knowledge of Christ, that's to have life, eternal life. False knowledge of Christ, though, well, that's to be led to hell. And in 2 Peter, there were false teachers in the church, sprouting out false knowledge of Christ. And there are few things more abominable than someone who's supposed to be teaching the truth about Jesus, but deliberately tells lies instead. Uh, When Richard Dawkins, that famous atheist, when, when he comes out saying that Christianity is wrong, that's one thing. But it's a whole other thing when it's actual church leaders that spew out lies about Jesus. Uh, You expect your enemies to say wrong stuff, but when it's an inside job, 
when you're betrayed from within, being led to hell by the very people that are meant to lead you into truth and into eternal life, that is an outrage. When the justice system gets it wrong and someone's sent to jail when they shouldn't have been, there's an outrage. When a, a doctor misdiagnoses a patient and they suffer awful consequences, there's an outrage. When a church leader gets it wrong about Jesus and leads people to help, there should be an outrage. And that's what was happening in Peter's day. And he was furious. So let's have a look at chapter 2. And we'll see what Peter says about these false teachers. First thing he does is he looks at their methods and their beliefs. So chapter 2, verse 1, and Peter starts with their methods. Verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now see that? The false teachers were among them. It's an inside job. False teachers in the church. And how are they spreading out their false knowledge of Christ? Well, keep reading, halfway through verse 1. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Their method was to get on the inside and secretly introduce their heresies. Uh, Not blatantly, not obviously, but secretly, cleverly, subtly. You've got to watch out for these type of guys. They're hard to pick. And the snakes that Peter was dealing with, in verse 1, we see that their particular belief, their particular heresy, was to deny Christ's sovereignty. Or in other words, to deny Christ's authority. So halfway through verse 1 again. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. In other words, they were denying that Jesus has the right to tell us how to live. They were denying that Jesus has sovereign authority. They were changing Jesus to a toothless Jesus so that, as we'll see later, they were saying that means we can do whatever we like. Jesus doesn't count. He doesn't care. Instead of sticking to the the God-given truth that Jesus is the majestic, world-beating king, as Peter did, these Charlies, they actually even just make up their stories. Verse 3. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. So what you've got is these false teachers with their cleverly made-up stories. They'd infiltrated the church, become teachers were subtly and cleverly introducing destructive heresies, leading people to hell and exploiting them along the way. And it's at this point that Peter starts to let fly. Wolves have come in among God's people and Peter's going to do what he can to alert the sheep. Now Peter warms up to the task. In verses 4 to 9, he's going to start speaking of God's judgment on these false teachers, but he also wants to remind us that God knows how to rescue his people from them. So I'll pick it up in verse 5. And as I read, look for Peter's emphasis on God knowing how to save his people from trials at the hands of the wicked. Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, the preacher of righteousness and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials 
and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Basically, Peter's saying that down through the ages, God has rescued his people from the wicked. Wicked people don't overcome God's people, just like with Noah and Lot. God destroys the wicked. God, God knows how to rescue his people from them, and he'll do the same again. So the comfort of these verses is that God knows how to rescue his people. The challenge of these verses is therefore not to join in with the wicked. Don't be carried away by their lies. Don't join in with their wickedness because God knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. And it's this point that Peter really wants to ram home. God knows how to judge them. From verse 10, Peter writes at length about the false teachers around at the time. And there are a few places, I think, in the New Testament that equal the venom that Peter writes with in chapter 2. Peter is seriously angry here. He doesn't hold back. He rips into them. He verbally tears them to pieces. It is an unnerving read. And Peter's so strong in his condemnation of these false teachers because there is so much at stake. True knowledge of Christ results in eternal life. False knowledge of Christ results in eternal death. And Peter is very protective of, his, of God's people. And so he lets fly on the false teachers. Uh, just this morning at morning tea during early church, my four-year-old son had a uh, fight with a pole and got a dirty, great big gash in his head, blood going everywhere. He's at hospital right now. Uh, but when I found out... Uh, I just got very protective. You know, he's my four-year-old son. I want to make sure he's looked after. And so I'm there and I'm trying to patch up the blood and all the rest of it. I, I'm very protective. He's my son. I didn't want to see him with a... I'm very protective. Peter is very protective of God's people. Now, they're not, they're not in danger of running into poles. They're in danger of false teachers, wolves in among, the sh- in among the sheep to drag them into hell. And Peter doesn't want anyone carried away by their smooth lies. Have a look at verse 12. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. Verse 17, skip down to there, verse 17. These men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever is mastered him. Peter doesn't hold back. He calls them brute beasts, experts in greed, filled with lust and adultery, and they never stop sinning. They're not just wrong. They're wicked and they appeal to lustful, sinful desires in order to entice others to join them in their wickedness. And they're succeeding. They're seducing others into their depravity and into their rebellion. But for all their promise of a life free from authority, free from constraint, they deliver nothing because instead of freedom, they're enslaved to the very evil desires that they flaunt. And by fooling others, they're ensnaring them into their pit of wickedness. 
And by fooling others, they make themselves the objects of God's full and personal fury. God knows how to judge them. Blackest darkness, Peter says, is reserved for them. The curse and condemnation of God. For the harm they've done, they'll be paid back harm from God himself. God knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but even more so if you deliberately try to lure people away from the risen Christ because eternal life's at stake. People need, we need, the true knowledge of Christ, the true Christ who is Lord, the Christ who has already died to cleanse us of our sins, the Christ who is coming back to judge the wicked and to save his people. The true Christ has got complete control. The true Christ has already risen from the dead and so already won for us eternal life. The true Christ, it matters to him how we live because he owns us and he bought us at the price of his blood so that we would have the privilege and the pleasure and the blessing of living now and forever for him. And so true knowledge of Christ, it leads to eternal life. False knowledge of Christ is on the fast track to hell. And so for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of those around us, just like Peter, we need to have intolerant knowledge of Christ. We can't tolerate false teachers among us. For someone to come among us and deny Christ's sovereignty, to undermine the authority of Christ and lure people away from his word, to cleverly encourage us in wickedness, we would need to take a stand against this. We would need to be intolerant, uncompromising, defiant. For the sake of each other's eternal destiny, we can't tolerate lies about Jesus among us. Now, please let me say, I don't think this is happening here at DPC. At this stage in our history, we are very guarded with the truth of the Bible. We carefully screen our pastors and teachers and our elders. We don't just ask anyone to be a growth group leader. They need to know the truth, they need to live the truth, and they need to be able to teach the truth. We are very strong on everyone reading and living by the Bible as we should be. Because eternal life's at stake. True knowledge of Jesus is what we need. Let's not lose sight of it. As Peter said, back in chapter 1, the Old Testament and the words of the apostles and the eyewitnesses, in other words, our Bible, it's our authority. It's where true knowledge of Christ comes from. We need to know that and we need to remember that so that we'll all have the true knowledge of Jesus. So whenever we get together on a Sunday morning, or whenever you go to your growth group, or whenever you come along to mob, or even when we're just talking with one another, if someone's claiming to tell you the truth about Jesus, please check that what someone's telling you is actually from the Bible. Don't just believe it because so-and-so said it. Because to be led down the garden path when it comes to Jesus, you don't end up at a pond but at a lake of fire. Now we need to think this through, not just for us here at DPC, because for some of us here, DPC won't be the last church family we'll be a part of. Some of us will move on to other towns, we'll commit to other churches. 
how will you choose which church family to belong to? Because there are plenty of so-called churches out there that explicitly deny the authority of Christ. The Lord Jesus explicitly rules us by his word. So to deny the authority of the Bible is to deny the authority of Christ. And there's plenty of so-called churches out there who deny the authority of the Bible. They explicitly say that the Bible is at best partly applicable. They explicitly say that it at best has some things to say. But not surprisingly, the bits they like simply agree with how they want to live and the bits they don't like, they just explain away. And so they end up with a watered-down Jesus, a meek and mild Jesus, and I tolerate everything and wickedness doesn't matter Jesus. They end up with a Jesus with no teeth, a Jesus who wouldn't write 2 Peter 2, a Jesus who won't judge, a Jesus who isn't Lord, a Jesus who can't save. Sometimes they end up with a Jesus who's still dead. Sometimes he doesn't even exist. Certainly the Jesus they're talking about does not exist. And if you walk into a church that is explicitly denying the authority of Christ in the scriptures, you can't tolerate it. At the very least, you've got to walk out. Don't let yourself be carried away by false teaching about Jesus. Because false teaching about Jesus lands people under the curse and under the judgment of God. It dangles people over the pits of hell and God knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. He also knows how to rescue his people. So with eternal life and a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom waiting to be given, let's not tolerate false teaching. Instead, let's be the people who stand fast in the true knowledge of Christ. Let's continue to pay careful attention to God's word and the Bible. Let's protect each other in the truth. Let's grow in our knowledge of Christ. Let's grow in our following of Christ. Let's help each other to keep on trusting in Christ as our Lord and as our Saviour. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through our knowledge of your Son we have everything we need for life and godliness, for a rich welcome into your eternal kingdom. And thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, but that we have in your scriptures the truth about your Son, the majestic King, the one who has died that we might be yours and saved from our sin. And Father, we pray that we will continue in the truth, that you would protect us from false teaching and that as a church family, we would guard the truth carefully and seek to see that every single one of us knows the truth and lives the truth and all to your glory and praise because your son is our great God and saviour. Father, because he's risen from the dead, we have hope of eternal life. And so we thank you for Jesus. And we're praying that by your spirit, we would always gladly and humbly live by his word. And we pray it for his glory. Amen.